You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan here with Sky. And uh, yeah, going into a big one yes. today, which, Huge. you know, we say that every time. It's, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this one is in particular kind of a big deal. It is. In, uh, in an LDS perspective especially it's a big deal in a christian perspective but we're talking about the letter of james yes james 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 are we going to take a martin luther yeah. take no uh nope we're not no well so. theologically but <laughs> no that wasn't his best moment luther if you don't know um may or may not have claimed that James should not be part of the canon. That's yeah. Now he didn't remove you know, it. He didn't. He did not remove it. But don't he mess probably with just it. said that Luther said some snarky things that yeah. you know he 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 would not have done well in a social media era. No. Let's just put it that way. We can no. be thankful that Luther <laughs> did right. not have Twitter. Right. So and, and I, I'm sure there's great Lutheran scholars that have written commentaries on James. Oh yeah. I'm sure oh, yeah. that exists somewhere. Um, but yeah, not his best moment. Yep. Yep. Well, what you been up to, man? Well, um, reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, <laughs> just reading. I got to go see the new Christian research center, um, Mormon research ministry. Yeah. I encourage everyone listening to go check it out. I think they're going to officially open, um, after Black Friday. Yeah. At least I think that's their goal. It looks great. Um, they have a bookstore in there. They had a copy, uh, a printed uh, text, like a book of Orson Pratt's The Seer that I mm. totally bought. Mm. That's awesome. Get it. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited that I think it's going to fill the niche that will kind of have been lost in the retirement of Sandra Tanner. Yep. So I know that's the goal. and They're carrying her materials in there mm-hmm. from what i saw i saw, I saw yep. some pictures i haven't been out up there yet but yeah from the pictures i've seen it seems like it's going to be a great place and really good addition to utah it's in draper right is that yes is that right I'm somewhere sure. somewhere around there so yeah it's in between um salt downtown salt lake and and us which will be nice because you know when we would go up to Utah Lighthouse Ministries, which was Sandra, Sandra Tanner's ministry. That was always a decent drive for us, but this one is a little bit closer. And it looks like they got a nice piece of real estate. You know, it's good, a parking good, lot. So that we're looking, help. yeah, commercial building, parking lot, all the things. So that's gonna be great. Yeah. What cool. about you? Uh, well, yeah, reading a lot on critical theory. That was what that's what I did last week. So that was great. Um, I've, I've read, you know, I mean, it's funny. I've got all the, a whole bunch of different stuff on it. People come in and they start, they, I've got, a, I've got, you know, we talk about my office a lot here. I've got a section of books that are on kind of current issues, cultural issues, things of that nature. And that section just so happens to be the one that's going to kind of be right in your line of sight. If you come into my office and sit on my couch And so I have a lot of people that come in and they (laughs) look up at that section and they see all these different books that, uh, you know, they're like, why do you have this on your shelf? They just assume that, you know, you you assume all sorts of stuff when you see something. I had not thought of that placement. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm kind of like, maybe I should rearrange my, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. my bookshelf. So anyway, but yeah, um, that was good catching up on some of that and uh, preached on on that um, this past Sunday because we were in uh, Galatians or Galatians Colossians three eleven, which is the text where you know Paul's saying here there's no longer Greek or Jew. Uh, uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. And, um, you know, it, we just kind of dove into considering that uh, critical theory does not enable or allow for a uh, healthy, biblical, diverse community. And that's important for our church because we have 13 plus. Um, nationalities, people groups represented in our church, and wow. we don't have a huge church. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's just the kind of philosophy that is created by man that can rip communities like that apart if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's what I studied on and preached on. And, yeah, other other news here at uh, First Baptist is you walked in on the big project Today, yeah. um, we've got a fellowship hall that we're renovating, so we've got some folks helping with that, so there's a lot of, today was demo day, so everybody was breaking out their inner chip gains, which yeah. you probably don't even know who that is, do you? Uh-uh. Yeah, I have no I, idea. I figured not. Maybe some of you listeners do, so <laughs> it's all good. It was intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of breakage and uh, scary things exposed in the... <laughs> Yep. In the ceilings, oh, um, boy. so old buildings. <clears throat> anyway, all right, man. Well, we got a lot to cover, so let's jump on into it. Let's do it. Like I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the Epistle of James, and the uh, the LDS Church is going to be studying this in all their wards in uh, November from November thirteenth to the nineteenth of twenty twenty three. And so if you're tracking with us in real time, you kind of know when that's going to be studied in the LDS uh, congregations. But uh, yeah, we're going to just dive into their Come Follow Me curriculum, which is what we've been doing. Of course, if you've been with us all year, uh, we're getting close to the end. So I, I don't know if you started prepping for uh, the next thing. I haven't, but man, I start getting my head into I'm, the new year. Yeah. Um, should, should we announce what we're going to do? I don't know if we've said it on here yet. Have I don't we know. said what we're going to do? So, so, I don't think so. So we're going to take the the first several weeks of 2024 to walk through the Nicene Creed yes. line, line by line. And we're going to break it down, go to the different uh, relevant texts of Scripture, mm-hmm. and work through the ideas. And, and that's going to be really fun because, uh, you know, we will be, of course, pulling in some compare and contrast to LDS theology as we yes. go along. But uh, it'll be refreshing just to take that sort of deep dive into some credo-christian theology absolutely so yeah the god we worship yeah absolutely yeah maybe that's what we'll call it yeah <laughs> new series no, that's good all right let me walk on through this and then uh we'll we'll just really hit some of the key points and i think the two main points that we're going to be hitting on just in advance for for the listener's sake is uh we're gonna we're gonna get some really good historical information on the first vision uh, because of course the first vision account is always told through the lens of James 1 
five to six. Yep. Um, you know, go go and 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 if anyone asks of of God, He will grant him you know wisdom. And so we're gonna be able to hear some good historical details on some of the problems with the first vision. So I'm looking forward to hearing you give us some information on that, Skylar. And then we're gonna really spend a good bit of the time in James two because James two is so key. If uh, if you have conversations with LDS. Uh, thinkers uh, regularly, you know that James two comes up all the time, yeah. and uh, you know anytime that you are trying to make a presentation of justification through faith alone, um, you're going to get a response about James two, and so um, we're we're going to work through James two really just verse by verse, and uh, you know sh- should be able to see the context of James there. And understand that Paul and James are actually agreeing with each other. Um, they're not contradicting each other at all. They're they're in agreement, which is what Paul says in Galatians. Um, he, he went down to to uh, Jerusalem and met with James and Peter, and Paul explicitly says in Galatians that uh, they all agreed on the gospel. And so um, we do see that even in their letters. And uh, some of the perceived contradictions are just a misreading of the text that can be very easily exposed and dealt with if you just take the time to walk through it and understand what it says. So we'll get into that. But let, let me just line out some of the things that we're seeing in the Come Follow Me curriculum. And feel free to jump in and make any comments that you'd like to on this as we walk through this quickly, Skylar. So um, you get the typical encouragement to the teacher at the beginning before reading this outline. Read the epistle of James. Pay attention to promptings that you receive. Yeah, not the text, yeah. but so, the promptings. So those inner promptings, this inner knowing. Uh, again, it's just worth pointing that every time because it's yeah. so prevalent and it's important to see that, that, that. One of the fundamental differences, of course, is we've hit on over and over again between us and a uh, LDS person is the epistemology. How do we know truth? And does truth exist really objectively outside of you, or is truth more so this inner subjective experience? And the LDS uh, worldview is that truth is known very much so only through this kind of inner knowing. And so that's why we see that all the time for front and for uh, front front and foremost. <laughs> That's not the way you say that, but hey, we'll, we'll just move on. <laughs> All right. Uh, same sort of a thing um, in the invite sharing section. If it's not too personal, it says they could share what they feel they need to act on. So again, very feelings-based. And then we get into the teach the doctrine stuff. And the first section is James 1, 5 to 6. And I'm just going to go and read James 1, 5 to 6 because it's it's worthwhile. And uh, then we don't necessarily have to come back and, and read this when you're working through some of the first vision stuff. But these are the verses that are uh, claimed by Joseph Smith to have been the ones that he was reflecting on when he went out and received the first vision. And so here are James 1, 5 to 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that's the reference. So they, in their... Uh, Come Follow Me curriculum, have the subtitle, When We Ask in Faith, God Gives Liberally. When We Ask in Faith, God Gives Liberally. Now, notice, I'll just note, there's nothing said about really even the context of this being in asking for wisdom from God. It really is just turned into uh, almost like a kind of health wealth, um, you know, 
name it, claim it, manifest it sort of a thing um, right there. When we ask in faith, God gives liberally. So it's almost implying whatever you want, ask in faith, God gives liberally. Um, So they do go on and say the principles taught in James 1, 5 to 6 led Joseph Smith to a life-changing spiritual experience, and they can bless each of us in some way. Perhaps you could write questions like the following on the board and ask class members to ponder them silently. What influence has James 1, 5 to 6 had in your life? What has Joseph Smith's experience with these verses taught you about seeking wisdom about your own questions? What experiences have taught you that, quote, the testimony of James is true, end quote. That's from Joseph Smith History 1. 26 and it says invite class members to share, to share thoughts that they have after pondering these questions so yeah um yeah just very much again reading all of this through the lens of of personal feelings personal experience and then also if anything outside of you it's not going to be consider the text objectively but think about joseph smith's experience with this text so that's what we see going on there. And I'm right. looking forward to some of the notes on the first vision, but do you, do you have any quick comments yeah, on that just, before? Just really quick. Yeah. Of course it's, this is made as a, a way to gain experience and you can take it a more Gnostic direction in terms of, you know, you're seeking this inner knowing this knowledge, this Gnosis. Um, that's not wisdom yeah. biblically understood, yeah. right? Yeah. Wisdom right. is distinct from knowledge right? It's a proper application of it. It's a love of the truth. I mean, there's a whole wisdom tradition um, that we also see consummated uh, in Christ Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. That's right. That's None right. of that is mentioned. Yeah. None of that. Yeah. There's no sense of an entire entire genre That's right. of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, you even think of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord yeah. is the beginning of wisdom. Right, and and then the proverbs being one of the fundamental pieces of wisdom literature that we have that Jews would have thought of any time that they saw wisdom uh, reference, they would have thought of this wisdom tradition that is present in the Old Testament scriptures. But just how much uh, emphasis there is in the wisdom tradition on listening to the words. Yes, uh, you know, I even think of the the Solomon writing down um, these words in the Proverbs and, and some of these words are him writing words like son, listen to my words, listen, listen to this. You need to listen to the words that are being taught. The words that of course, Solomon knows he's writing there. And we know God is inspiring as uh, as scripture for us to read and, and learn and understand and study who God is. So um, it's always tied to knowing God through his revelation to us. Um, that's, that's really the fundamental core of the wisdom tradition. So, um, yeah, there, there's really nothing on that. It's more what kind of inner experiences can you have with God? There's not really um, an objective uh, source that you can go to in order to gain wisdom. Right, and, and therefore it can turn into this proof text, um, apply, they don't, they don't need that verse, for the mm-hmm. principle, the principles that they teach, right? They have their principles, and, and same with James 2, the same point applies. They are not basing any of their theology on this text. They have their theology, they can play word games with these proof texts, and then they will throw them out or, or kind of imagine that they have the key to understanding the whole. Yep, yep. And if, if anything is uh, contrary, they have they have all the escape routes given to them. It's not translated. It's not transmitted. It's been corrupted. It's yep. right. We have a living prophet. We have a living voice within. 
And so it's like, no, 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 no. When, when James is saying you lack wisdom, keep reading. Don't, yeah. don't close your Bible. Yeah. Keep reading. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's about to lay out some good wisdom for us. Um, now, I also want to just be cautious because I don't want to imply that we don't believe there's any subjective element to our faith. Sure. Um, you know, there there is an encouragement here to pray to God. Yes. Pray to God and ask ask for wisdom. And that wisdom does come through the word, but but uh, for the true believer, we also are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of wisdom. And and so there, there you know, we there is a reliance on God, even in things that aren't necessarily objectively revealed in the scripture. But of course, we would consider anything that comes to our mind uh, subjectively to to uh, necessarily having to be subjected to the objective revelation of God in scripture. And so right. if any sort of wisdom that we think we have comes to us and we feel it's from God, if that is in any way contradictory to revelation that has been given to us in the scriptures, then we know it's not the scriptures that are in error, but us. Mm-hmm. And so it's just important to make those notes. I, I, I just don't want to ever imply that we're like, you know, there's zero experiential element to our faith. Um, because there is an experiential element, but we're just what we're always wanted to point people back to. That's not your anchor. That's not your foundation. Mm-hmm. That's not your 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 refuge. That's not how you really really know right. uh, what you ought to be trusting in, what the object of your faith ought to be. Right, and that experience though in that culture though, it's the the way they tell whether the experience is true or not is their comfort with it. Yeah, and just you know, if someone grows up in a dysfunctional family. That's what they're used to. That's what's comfortable. And so part of the challenge is getting at the root of what they call experience, yep. which is the errors that they're used to. Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, I'm anti-experience, but only the types of experiences that are, I guess, what organically grown in a toxic environment that truly acts as if when God speaks, it can't be understood. But when he speaks to your feelings, that's absolute truth even if it's clearly not objectively true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's getting people out of the mindset of trusting in the most absolute sense, at least for the individual, yeah. that sort of experiential moment or revelation or things like that. So, so yeah, there, there's a need to try to jolt people out of that. Yeah. But at the same time, anybody who comes to true saving faith has an experience with sure. God. Yep. And so we, we, and is, is led by God. Yes. Ultimately, and most importantly through the scriptures, but also in other ways that God mm-hmm. has ordained for us. And so, you know, even I, yeah, you know, I would not hold away from using terms that we sometimes see in here. You know, uh, one of my favorite authors and uh, professor at the school that I went to, Tom Schreiner, in his book on uh, spiritual gifts, he's a cessationist, meaning that he does not believe that any of the uh, more miraculous spiritual gifts have continued past the apostolic era. But, you know, he, he does deal with, in one of the chapters, how do you deal with um, the need to kind of be led by the spirit, you know, and, and he does use the word spiritual impressions, which is kind of ironic because we see that yeah. use here so much, but of course he doesn't right. mean it in the sense of this is how you know the ultimate truth. He just means that there is a sense in which as a believer, you ought to understand the spirit is in you. And mm-hmm. so you should be sensitive to that in your daily walk. You should, uh, you know, have an, have an awareness of is God impressing on me to go talk to somebody, to pray for somebody in particular, things like that. Um, so there is a, there is a, 
speaking of what I've been studying in critical theory, there is a element of lived experience within the Christian life, but that's not our standard of ultimate truth. And that's the mm-hmm. difference. That's the, that's the important difference to mm-hmm. highlight there. Yep. Um, okay. And then we get into the next section, which is James one, two to four and five, seven to 11. And I'm just going to read through the subtitle and kind of hit on some points here, but it, the subtitle is if we endure patiently, the Lord will lead us to perfection. And boy, th- this is just a, a, again, a sad thing to read uh, from our perspective, but not unexpected. Um, if we endure patiently, so we need to endure patiently. This is the work that we do. It's this patient endurance. If we do that, the Lord will lead us to perfection. And they uh, just encourage class members to go on searching some of these different scriptures and looking at a video of uh, Uchtdorf um, in a, his message, Continue in Patience. And it says, class members could share what they have learned about patience as they've come to know Heavenly Father and the Savior who has helped us develop, or what has helped us develop patience. Yeah, notice that no, gnosis, this inner knowing, of the two gods, and in James, right, even the demon, as we're going to get to, yeah. even the demons know there's only one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so once again, you know, they don't keep reading, yeah. even though they'll proof text from this next section as we're about to hit. Yep, yep. All right, here's the biggie, and uh, I'll just hit on it quickly, and then we'll come back because we're going to spend a good bit of time on it. But they reference the verses James 1, 3 to 8, 21 to 25 and 2 14 to 26 and the subtitles faith without works is dead one way to discuss james teachings about faith and works could be to divide your class into two groups one to explore why faith requires action and the other to explore why our actions require faith to do this they could read matthew 7 21 to 23 and they list a number of scriptures there and, they and then also the, the joseph smith yeah and they history yeah same level one authority yeah <laughs> then each group could share what they found and discuss why both faith and works are necessary right. necessary, necessary for what, for what? Yeah. exactly <laughs> Um, and then they say to help class members ponder more deeply the memorable phrase, faith without works is dead. You could write the following sentence on the board. Faith without works is like blank without blank. I'd be interested to see some of the responses there. In fact, if you're in one of these classes and you're just interacting with us, like, you know, shoot it, shoot us a email with some of the responses yeah. that were in your class. I know there's a few. Curious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really would be curious. Distinctive Christianity at gmail.com. Faith without works is like blank without blank. What are some of the things people put? Invite class members to think of creative ways to complete the sentence and then uh, let them write their ideas on the board. <clears throat> then ideas. what can we continually, what can we do to continually act on our faith in Jesus Christ? Okay. Uh, James 2, 1 and 9, as disciples, the subtitles, as disciples of Christ Jesus, we love all people regardless of the circumstances. This is the well-known passage on... Uh, partiality and a very important passage, even relative to what I preached on this past Sunday with critical theory. But they, uh, of course, say to help inspire class members to show Christ-like love to everyone, regardless of the other situation or outward appearance. You could ask members to take turns reading verses uh, from James and all these verses, and they say discuss questions like the following: What does it mean to have respect to persons? Why do some, uh, we sometimes treat others who have money, fame, or power differently than those who don't? 
How can we avoid treating others differently based on what their circumstances are? In what way are faithful followers of the Savior really the richest of all? I think it's worth reading this passage real quick. This is James 2 from 1 to verse uh, 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich ones who oppress you? Are, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sins that you are convicted by as the law by the law as transgressors. And they skip verse 10. Uh, <laughs> for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Yeah. Um, and it goes on. But anyway, I, I, th- this is just what comes to mind as I read that. So um, having a conversation with a guy and um, he's baptized into the LDS faith like a year ago, um, grew up nominal LDS and uh, um, is, is exploring Christianity and is loving his Bible, just loves it. And, you know, his his words to me are, are, I'm just not getting Bible, and the LDS church just doesn't doesn't feel right. But one of the things that really set him off was uh, he'd been coming for a few months, and his his bishop pulls him aside and is is like, you know, hey, it's great that you've been coming here. We'd really like you to move up. It's, It's the actual words that are used. We'd really like you to move up. Um, but in order for you to do that, you're going to need to start dressing in, in these particular clothes. <laughs> and, and he was kind of like, why, why do I need to dress that way? And I, I just, the, the irony of, of knowing what sort of stuff happens on a regular basis in the LDS faith and, and then them referencing this sort of a verse, it's like right. show no partiality on the basis of how people dress or their wealth or their wealth, their riches. And, uh, yep. You know, it's just, uh, can you not see it? And yeah. um, it, it, for for a church that claims our works are evidence of our faith, um, boy, I, how many points just from analyzing your faith on the basis of James' epistle does does this fail? And uh, and the, the reason we all fail in this stuff, by the way, is because uh, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for for all of it. The truth is, we all fall short, and we all need need Christ. But uh, yeah, to to just see those contradictions, even if so apparently this week, uh, definitely stands out for sure. And and one point to put on it is, um, as D. Michael Quinn points out, um, in a as as per usual, very insightful way, at least in regards to Mormon history and theology, that, you know, the teaching has been explicit that God, Heavenly Father, that God, um, is like a CEO yeah. of the universe. Yep. 
And uh, so I would presume that Jesus just uh, is his runner up. It's going to take his place and then he'll move up to the next CEO position. And if that's your view of God and your whole system is, you know, following their example and the whole system is built on you do this, you get that. I know they're starting because it hasn't worked. Yeah. Um, yep. They're starting to put in footnotes like Nelson did recently that this is not to imply a cause and effect. I don't know. I was taught a cause and effect relationship. Yeah. You live this way, you get that result. You live this way, you'll get temporal blessings. Mm-hmm. And um, so the CEO uh, model is still ingrained in oh, that yeah. culture. And therefore, yeah. have notice, they have not really covered. I mean, this is as close as they've gotten in terms of treating people with money to at all approaching um, Jesus's teachings and warnings yep. about wealth. And by the way, in the wisdom literature to, as well about wealth yeah, yeah. and um, the, the, the type of sins that can come with it. Yeah. The, the idea of self-sufficiency, that deal, the individualism, the, 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 the sense that you don't have need. Um, you know, <laughs> Jesus said it. I mean, it's, there's no apology for it, right? It's easier for the, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle yep. than a rich man to get into heaven. That yeah. is a dire warning. Yep. Uh, and by the way, relative to the rest of the world, if you're, if you're in the United States today, right. yep. you are wealthy. Oh yes. Uh, so yep. um, anyway, it's just something that I, you know, I don't, I don't think gets enough attention. I know the left can misuse these, Yeah. Um, but no, they are there. We should oh, yeah. not be running from yes. this. And, and I do just wonder in, in an LDS way of thinking how this encouragement to show no partiality applies to the way that the common LDS person views the church leaders, the, the general authorities, you know, is Russell Nelson more valuable as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, than the common layperson who has no position in the church is their partiality, you know, and, and when you've been in context where you've heard uh, Nelson and, and others literally praised, just adored and yep. praised, worshiped. Um, it's almost like people view them as more than man in a, mm-hmm. in a higher, a higher version of man. And that, that is a system that just breeds partiality. Yep. Um, it, it's not like Nelson and I are literally on the same level. That's what happens if you come into our church friends. I, and I know that may shock some LDS people, but um, you know, and I do, we don't, we do have to fight against that sometimes because we live in a culture of celebrity. And so the person who's yep. platform, the person who's preaching sometimes our, uh, our church members can start to get the idea that we are superior in some way. And so we as elders here actually really intentionally seek to uh, live in such a vulnerable, open, authentic way to, to keep on the forefront of our people's minds that there is nothing, nothing at all that, that causes us or puts us on some higher level or higher plane than the person who just believed yesterday and is walking in our doors for the first time. Um, you know, if you are, are a person who uh, is just, is just looking for hope, looking for, um, for truth and, and you come wandering into our doors on a Thursday night and sit in on one of our prayer meetings, you're probably going to hear one or all of the elders, openly praying, confessing sins that we are struggling with um, in real time. And that's because we are sinners. We are on the same level as all of our congregants. And, uh, you know, we've got a responsibility, a job, of course, to uh, set some sort of an example there. And there are particular requirements given to elders, but that doesn't make us fundamentally better than anyone else. Um, Yes, there can be people who are 
maybe a little further along in sanctification and ought to be discipling and pouring into people who aren't quite as far along, but that doesn't fundamentally substantially make that person any more righteous um, mm-hmm. because our righteousness ultimately is in the same place and from the same source, and that's Christ. That's a righteousness outside of us, not within us that we've earned or merited to ourselves. So everyone is equally sinners and equally righteous in a evangelical Christian church because um, our our sinful state in Adam puts us all on the same playing field and our newfound life in Christ puts us all on the same playing field. And so it's just different. That, right. that, that's why you can have a community that's not partial sure. to one another is because of those gospel realities. Mm-hmm. Whereas this gentleman you mentioned, if they're saying we want you to move up, you got to dress this way, behave that way. Well, okay. Uh, ask an LDS, um, someone who is endowed, is that better, higher, more important than just someone was baptized last week? Right. And if they know their Mormon theology and are willing to be honest with their language, the answer is yes. Yep. And here's the thing. The elites have a second endowment, mm-hmm. you know, for those associated with their businesses and all this stuff. I mean, it's just hilarious yep. that they're talking yep. about this this year, right? Where LDS business and prophetic influence like M. Russell Ballard. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Like M. Russell Ballard, uh, come so much, so often kind of intersect. Yeah. yeah. And you do have, as Quinn says, a hierarchy. Um, and there's theological reasons for that. Yep. Yep. Um, and so it's, yeah, once again, this, I feel like this is, in a sense, whistling past the graveyard. Yeah. It's saying, yeah, you guys have this standard. Of course, us, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the way they talk, you see it. Nelson's last message. Right, where it's just like yes. I think all my obedience has really impacted even my career. Right, I yeah. mean he's just seen as like he'll even embellish stories. This is this is demonstrable. He'll tell stories in his his biography that was you know on the market for a minute, yeah. and you had the family that it was about actually contact the church and say that's not true. Yeah, he's em- he embellishes stories, which is lying, folks. And we're going to get into another one. Uh, of course, uh, the first one who started that, Joseph Smith, in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and then the last section is James 3, which James 3 is the very well-known section on the tongue and uh, use, using your tongue wisely and well and taming it so that you don't destroy uh, people with it. Um, so just being wise with your words. And so James 3, the subtitle in the LDS Come Follow Curriculum on this is the wor- the words we use have the power to hurt or bless others. The powerful images James used can remind and motivate us to use words, both spoken and written, to uplift others. Consider inviting class members to scan James 3, looking for comparison James uses to describe how words can hurt or bless others. Some class members might enjoy drawing pictures of what they find. <laughs> How do these comparisons illustrate James's uh, instructions in this chapter? For example, how can our words be like a fire? Perhaps class members could share experiences that demonstrate the power that language can have. You might have you might invite class members to ponder how they can apply James's counsel. And uh, you know, I, I don't know that we have much time to get into the minutia of this, but no. uh, you know, knowing an LDS worldview. Um, there is a, a, a lot of new agey sort of ways of yep. thinking when it comes to how they understand words mm-hmm. that you you really manifest the pa- the power of positive yep. thinking right yep. Thing, things like that you you manifest your reality through the power of your spoken words so mm-hmm. speak whatever you want to speak into existence and that is literally a sort of power that causes 
that mm-hmm. thing to come into existence that you want to manifest. Yep. Um, any other comments you want to make J- on that? Just in the manual itself, it says the words we speak have power, the power of words, both that we hear and speak. And then they quote a guy um, that uh, I had not heard this name in so long, Robert Wood. Um, from October 1999 General Conference, the Tongue of Angels, I just figured this was worth including. He says, Our words and eternal expressions are not neutral, true, for they perfect both who we are and shape who we are becoming. Uh, word of faith. So those who are into discernment ministry, right? Uh, well, no, that, that sounds a little, little word of faith. And if you see the word of faith's little God's doctrine... Uh, you'll see uh, there is an extreme charismatic form of just this message. He then says, we have been called to be a light, to sanctify ourselves and edify others. And my note on that was Christ complex. Remember in, in John 17, Jesus says, I sanctify myself for these. Yeah. But according to the manual, we are to use the power of words, both that we hear and speak, to sanctify and edify ourselves to be a light. Yep. Okay. So it is 1820, 1823, 1820 something. <laughs> Joseph Smith reads James chapter one. Yeah. If maybe, um, and yep. help us out here. Okay. So uh, this, this deserves an in-depth treatment that we just don't have time for because I really want to get to the exegesis of James 2. I mean, it comes up every conversation. Let's walk verse by verse through James 2, but just really quickly, bird's eye view. Um, the founding story of the church, and you see this in basically everything until later, and sometime, in some ways, way later, um, the call to his work, his holy work, DNC 20, is the Book of Mormon, the Moroni visit. We've mentioned this a little bit on the restoration narrative, that the the restoration narrative really was centered on the Moroni visit, the Book of Mormon, right? And and this shift toward the first vision as the point of restoration um, became greater emphasized post, not official Declaration 1, but when they said we actually are going to mean it, um, with Joseph F. Smith. And to show that, even... Um, Joseph F. Smith and Orson Pratt, when they're doing um, basically a history tour, trying to collect documents and affidavits, in part, by the way, to prove that Joseph Smith was a polygamist <clears throat> against the RLDS, they they mention uh, the place of the Moroni visit. They don't even mention the first vision. They don't mention the sacred graves, growth stuff. So that's, that's decades later. So here's the thing. We have uh, 1832 account. Oh, I, I should say, too, that the LDS emphasis on this was not only the story, but almost the litmus test for the truthfulness of the church. So Gordon B. Hinckley, who's a prominent president of the church, I want to include just two quotes just to show the stakes here. In in the October 1961 General Conference, he said, I would like to say that this cause is either true or false. Either this is the kingdom of God, or it is a sham and a delusion. Either Joseph talked with the Father and the Son, or he did not. And if he did not, we are engaged in blasphemy. And uh, similar to show, he didn't change that position. If you go fast forward to October 2002, I was alive. I remember this talk. He gave a talk called The Marvelous Foundation of Our Faith. And he says this, We declare without equivocation that God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in person to the boy Joseph Smith. 
Uh, this is, let's see, uh, when I was interviewed by Mike Wallace on the 60 Minutes program, he asked me if I actually believe that. I replied, yes, sir, that's the miracle of it. That is the way I feel about it. Our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did, then it is the most important and wonderful work under the heavens. Then, uh, let's see, skipping ahead just a little bit, he mentions the James 1.5 reference. Uh, Upon that unique and wonderful experience stands the validity of this church. Stakes are high on this. And um, this is actually a story in terms of us finding out about the differing accounts um, that involves figures like Sandra Tanner herself, right? When she's finding out there's more, there's strange accounts, there's rumors of this or that. Um, the Tanners are to be thanked for public, publishing this when the church was hiding it. We even now know that Joseph Fielding Smith, when he found one of these, quote, strange accounts, cut the page out of the journal and hid it in a vault hmm. uh, with the seer stone that he also yeah. denied. So <laughs> like the, they, when, once they saw there were these differences, mm-hmm. they, it's not just you and me that saw the issue. Yeah. It's Joseph Fielding Smith that saw the issue. Yeah. So, um and in part, in part because of this heightened emphasis on it, which might be one of the motivating factors for trying to go away from it, right, mm-hmm. as a key point of restoration. Well, in the 1832, I don't have, once again, there's there's like nine to different ones. Some of them are just really, maybe it's referring to it, maybe not. Um, let me just focus on the first one, and then the 1838 everyone knows. That's in the missionary discussions. Every missionary in the world knows that 1838 account, right? They've cited it all year in this manual. Well, in the 1832, the earliest, he's age 15, um, and he says, uh, let me just read this part, because this is one of the two things I want to really focus on in terms of the differences. There's tons of differences, but the question is, do these differences rise to the level of necessarily, right, contradiction. Now, uh, one point for the Christian. There's differences between the Gospels, right? And we employ different methods of trying to harmonize, but also acknowledge certain difficulties, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Keep in mind, LDS apologists, like they want to do, have hijacked that method and claim they can do that with these four. And that's the reason why in the post-Mormon community, they're going to, to use this and point out this stuff, but then if you bring up you're a Christian, they're going to say you're using a double standard because you couldn't do that with the Gospels. If, if you allow harmony between the Gospels, you should allow the LDS harmony. Right? They, right. So th- there's, a, there's a, a hole here I see in the need for Christian engagement with Mormonism, which is basically preserving the, the methods we have used in apologetics and exposing the lies Mormons are using them for. Yeah. Right? So, uh, for even presuppositionalism, so right. some of the Book of Abraham apologetics, you know, if you point out, obviously it's made up or whatever, you didn't get a single word right when he claimed it was a translation, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to say, well, what's, you know, atheism and secularism, and you know, they're going to go it'll go nuclear yeah. in the way that I think Van Til does, but in a responsible intellectual kind of way in exposing different 
the contrasting worldview. Yeah. So just be aware of that. Um, and a lot of work needs to be done here so that we can distinguish ourselves to the post-Mormon community who is not no longer religious or agnostic or atheist, which is, I think, around half of people that leave. Yeah. My experience is even more. Oh, yeah. But I think Jana Reese's book shows it's, you know, about half. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, okay, sorry. 1832 account, this is the earliest explicit mention of the vision. Uh, and this point is key. Joseph Smith wrote, By searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. And then he he mentions the motivation was the welfare of his soul, the sins or whatever. And so there's no mention of God the Father. He does um, have... Uh, see the Lord who, once again, he doesn't say Jesus, but it's, he, uh, he, he said, the Lord says I was crucified. So we assume this is Jesus and uh, that he's forgiven of his sins. Um, and no mention of the revival, no mention of a context, which is say that. So notice there's no God, the father, no divine commission to open the last dispensation, no prophetic appointment, no revival. The motivation is the welfare of the soul, no God, the father. And he already knows the churches are wrong because he's so smart while he studies the scriptures on his own. Now, I'm going to skip some of these. There's a middle period that's actually really key where there's more than one personage in one and visitation of angels in another. But for those who listened to the last episode, the lectures on faith have two, right? You have kind of a a polytheism limited to two, one invisible, one visible. Um, Well, one of these fits that, and it's in 1835, which is kind of interesting. Yet still no explicit mention of God the Father, certainly not seeing and so this is key. Now the 1838 account, this is he mentions religious excitement, revivalism. He um, he the question is which church to join, and he literally it literally says right because it had never entered his heart um, right that all the churches were wrong. What's the exact quote? Um, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. Mm. Yeah, never. Okay. Um, now. That's interesting. Um, there's two personages, clearly, and they're told he's told not to join any church, right? And um, so now the whole motive, the context, it's all different, right? Um, whereas these earlier ones, he, it's around 14, 15 years old. Um, it's, it's still not clear. 1838, it's very clear, right? And Here's the thing. He also mentions, and this is another thing, he mentions that he's been, uh, he was persecuted severely for telling about this vision. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, first the date. Um, and I, of course, I'm just scratching the surface. Thank God for a reverend, Wes Walters, who went and looked and found that um, this revival is non-existent in 1820. Uh, apologists today, they'll try to point to this small Methodist camp meeting. Yeah. But that's not th- that's not what he says in 1838. Huh. He says all the sects, which by that, he <laughs> all, by all Christendom, he means Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists. Right. That's what he means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all of Christendom. Um, well, I- interesting. Each one of these churches, we have evidence for, right? And um, once again, thanks to William Smith, Oliver Cowdery, we also have a little more information. Um, but... The facts fit 1824 to 1825, not 1820. There was a revival here. So what are some of the evidences for this? Well, on the Presbyterian side, we have a a, a Reverend Benjamin Stockton, 
And um, the records show 1820 to 21, only 14 people joined the church, mm-hmm. according to their own records. Whereas 1824 to 25, 103. Um, so in terms of the Baptists, we see the growth of the church, 1824 to 1825, September of both years, 132 to 219. Um, so 87 join. Okay. Um, and no other year had an increase of more than a dozen. And then uh, we also have a mention, I think this one is, um, uh, no, William Smith was Benjamin Stockton. That's how we know that one. It's Oliver Cowdery how we, who mentions this reverend who's, who features in the film. If you go to the Salt Lake or whatever, they show this film of this evil Christian who's mocking Joseph. This is the Methodist Reverend George Lane. Here's the problem with him is um, he was only in the Ontario district from July 1824 to January 1825. And he actually, when he was released from presiding over the district, he wrote about it in a Methodist magazine, April 1825. Mm-hmm. And so we know that that district, 1824 to 25, plus 208, whereas in 1820 and 21, they actually lost 81 members. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty... It doesn't sound like a revival. No. And William Smith even said about the year 1823, um, Cowdery said the year 1823, they were both off by a year, according to the same research. The point being, there is no evidence of this revival. So 1820 is the wrong date, if anything happened yeah. at all. Now, 1832 account, the earliest account has no issues with that history, right? Because he's not framing it in the same way. And there's actually a whole culture, especially in the evangelicalism of that time, of seeing Jesus. So, like, it wouldn't, there wasn't persecution based on this, um, that which is another issue, right? There's there's literally no evidence of him being persecuted for recounting this vision. Yeah, you'd think there would be, and in fact, it's not even important to his family. They, I mean, his mom doesn't mention it in her book. Mm. Um, and they do mention these other things. So she mentions that, um, you know, uh, she, I think, joined Presbyterianism. I think Hiram did too. But it was after um, the death of her son, Alvin, and that's November 1823. So, <laughs> you know, just it's just not there. Here's the irony. He was getting resistance to his authority when? When he wrote the account. Yeah. In 1838. And the reason why is so key. Think about what this does. If your story to this point is centered on Moroni, well, ironically, earlier, it's Nephi. So he can't even get the angel totally straight. But eventually they settle on Moroni. And um, he then is, 1838 is a crazy year. He's reinterpreted, he's shifting it back He's shifting it away from the Book of Mormon, both historically and um, theologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes him less accountable to the book if that's not the basis of his authority. Mm-hmm. You see? And um, so why this need in 1828? Well, there's so much here. But basically, um, you have Martin Harris, who's one of the three witnesses, right? He's going to be excommunicated around this time. And one, one of the things that's going on in a public meeting, he says that none of the witnesses had physically seen or handled the plates, but that they and had not seen it with their, quote, natural eyes, spiritual eyes. This causes, in, 
there's other things as well, but there is a huge disaffection based on the Book of Mormon. Um, so, for example, um, this is hilarious. The president of the Quorum 12, Thomas B. Marsh, wrote of a meeting um, about a gentleman named Warren Parrish, who's one of these people who are freaking out about this comment, that we have of late learned that Parrish and most of the combination have openly renounced the Book of Mormon and become deists. <laughs> It's yeah. the it's the paradigm of the leave Mormonism to to kind of like a vague right. deism, yeah. right? Yeah. Atheism. Um, well, just I mean, you just can't believe how many people leave. First presidency member Frederick Drew Williams left. Uh, Martin Harris excommunicated. John Whitmer, one of the eight witnesses, excommunicated. Right. Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, excommunicated. Hiram Page, Jacob Whitmer, leave. Uh, apostles John F. Boynton, Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, all leave and renounce the Book of Mormon. William McClellan, leave. Thomas B. Marsh, Orson Hine, defect. Uh, let me read uh, just two quick uh, paragraphs from Grant Palmer. It's unbelievable coming from yeah. a guy. You know, we quoted Joseph Smith making the claim that no one has held the church together better <laughs> than I have, not even Jesus Christ, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Jesus Christ of his 12 had one defector yep. who defected because he was, of course, <laughs> part of the will of God yep. to be the According one to who would. To. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. And so, um, anyway, just, yeah. yeah. Well, like most of Smith's boasting, if you look closer, he's actually probably worse at it than mm -hmm. others. Yeah. Um, this is uh, Grant Palmer who covers this. Uh, if you want if you want just a great, just li a little bit of overview, Grant Palmer's insider's view of Mormon origins. Though there's more detailed treatments, the Tanners in their book. I mean, there's tons of stuff on the First Vision uh, issue. But um, he says, uh, within a month of Harris's comments, three of the apostles no longer believed in the Book of Mormon. Two more were, favor were out of favor with the church. All three witnesses of the Book of Mormon and three of the eight had defected. The entire Whitmer clan had left the church. Obviously, this uh, is uh, a tough time, right? And that's that's when he writes the 1838. And notice, it's, I sought God the Father and Jesus. Mm. I'm uh, called of God to restore the fullness of the gospel, right? The, <laughs> the purpose of his praying is, which is true. And by the way, in their lesson, this is what was part just so hilarious. They have David Bednar's asking faith conference talk where he's, of course, saying, you know, faith means you have to really mean it and be willing to act on it. And he says, Joseph Smith didn't just simply ask which church is right, but which church should I join? See, he was determined to act. That's not in the earlier ones. Mm -hmm. That's in the 1838 one and showing that you can't, there's nowhere else to go. See? See yeah. the motivation? All these people are leaving. He's losing power. Well, here I saw God the Father. Mm -hmm. No one can claim that. Not even Oliver Cowdery, who just disaffected, who can claim the angelic restoration of the priesthood stories, which, by the way, we've as we've looked at, that also was late and then added earlier to, to secure authority. Yeah. This is a pattern of Joseph Smith. This is Grant Palmer. Um, he says, and in fact, Palmer says it really well in another place as well, but I can't find it right off the top of my head, but he says he announced that his initial calling had not come from an angel in 1823, as he had said for over a decade, but from God the Father and Jesus Christ in 1820. This earlier date established his mission independent of the troubling questions and former witnesses associated with the Book of Mormon. Like the 1834-1835 priesthood restoration recitals, the first vision version of April 1838 added significant material that bolstered his authority during a time of crisis. And and notice too the theological shift as well where you know now the first visions used to attack the trinity. Right? And of course that he we don't have that being the initial 
reading of it at the time. But of course, it's going to be used later uh, all the time, even by missionaries to say, well, he saw two. So obviously all the creeds are an abomination. Um, so that's, yeah. So I could say uh, a lot, a lot more, but I just think if you see the context of 1838, you're going to see why he wrote it the way he did, not any of these earlier things. And insofar as he did have um, some sort of experience, um, if if he was told by God the Father not to join any church, it's ironic that even he may have joined the Methodist church. Like we have one piece of data that he did. He may have been a part of some of these Methodist revival camps. Um, his family, including Hiram, joined the Presbyterian church all after 1820. So it just doesn't work. Yeah. It, and so that's, it, it, there's a reason why it's one of the top, I don't know, uh, I, it's hard to say the top reasons. Uh, I'm sure someone has studied it, but it's certainly got to be a top 510 issue why people leave the church because these are contradictions. Yeah. And if you see this pattern of lying and deceit with Joseph Smith, of course I don't. I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Appreciate you running us through that. Okay, well, let's get to the uh, yeah the big uh, yeah hang up this. that uh, we tend to hit. Yeah, so um, as has already been mentioned, one of the main texts that comes up in conversation with LDS people, especially when you're talking about justification through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, is James 2. They, they will bring up James 2 frequently and honestly for a christian who hasn't really considered the book of james and how to interpret it rightly it can be a hang-up because on the surface some of the words do seem to be very confusing when compared to say galatians 2 15 and 16 and uh and so let me just maybe frame this by um reading for us from the book of galatians and then uh we can contrast that with uh, what we're seeing here. But the funny thing about that is I don't think that James and Paul are even writing against each other. Um, there are some different opinions on that. Uh, I, I think that James and Paul are actually saying the same thing. They just have a different emphasis in particularly what they're trying to address in the audience that they're writing to. But this often gets pitted against one another because the verbiage just sounds so similar. So Galatians 2, 15 and 16, we went through these two verses very slowly in our episode on Galatians. Go check this out if you'd like to uh, see how we understand this stuff. But let's just give it a surface reading. Paul writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We love sharing this verse with our LDS friends because it's good news. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, now skip over to James 2, because it seems to be the common trend that whenever we share that verse, people say, well, what about what James says? James says in chapter 2, and I'll beginning, uh, begin in verse 18 for our sake here, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Uh, do you want to be shown, oh, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Now listen to this. Verse 21 is kind of the key verse that they like to hone in on and following. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Okay, hold on a minute. 
Abraham justified by works? What's going on here? Paul says we are not justified by works of the law. Uh, here James says Abraham was, was justified by works. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. And then this is the big one, verse 24, that they often will just quote this verse. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So a lot of people run into this. They're like, man, this is so confusing, right? Are Paul and James opposed to one another? And then we're going to really get into this conversation a little bit more deeply. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about these false teachers as those who have apparently, so this was their claim, have been sent from James. And so a lot of people are like, trying to reconcile these ideas that it seems like there were these false teachers trying to say that you're justified by works. And they said that they were from James. Paul labors in Galatians to make it clear. No, I met with James personally and we agree on this stuff. So he indicates very clearly in the book of Galatians that those false teachers who were apparently from James were not really from James. And, uh, and, and so they're not teaching accurately. But of course, that always gets thrown into the mix here. Now, if you analyze James just on his own, I mean, even take the Paul conversation completely out of this, which is where LDS people often want to go, is try to pin these two things against one another. Just, just get rid of that. And let's just talk about James on his own. What does James mean by faith? What does James mean by justification? How do we understand this stuff in its right context? Well, you've got to see the letter for in its full context. And one of the key verses in the book of James that really, I think, sets the stage for the rest of what he's going to say is in chapter 1. Let me read this, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every good gift... Okay, so, so James is talking about gifts here in the context of, of faith. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is why you can trust him, because there's no variation in him. There's no shadow due to change. He's not like a man who can become doubtful and be tossed to and fro. Uh, he is fixed. He is settled. Yeah. He is absolute. Okay, now mm -hmm. verse 18. I know you're ready to jump in here, but verse 18 is key. Of his own will. God, this is talking about God, of his own will. Listen to this. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That was shorthand for the gospel in the early church. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he's writing to believers, and these believers are those whom God of his own will has brought forth by the word of truth, why? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Early believers understood that the redemptive work of God was the work in which he was bringing about a new creation, that Adam failed. Um, Adam was was part of the old world, old creation, and that's why the world is broken, because the whole world is in sin. What Christ comes to do is to through the word of truth, which is the gospel, his work, in other words, in our place, is, is to 
redeem us and buy us out of that broken world and to bring us into a new creation, a new creational reality that God is is bringing about through Jesus. Um, and so James has this stuff in mind, and that's what he's alluding to in these verses. And as those who have been brought about by God, we are part of this new creation, and we bear the fruit of this new creation as a result of God by his own will bringing us forth out of the old creation. And so James is writing to these believers, and he is laying down really just some some good uh, covenantal law, <laughs> some some good community standards, some good uh, just teaching and understanding and reminders that Christians who are part of the new creation need to be reminded of. Now that you are part of this new creation, this is the fruit you ought to bear. This is the way you ought to live your life. And so that's who he's writing to. That's the basis of even what he's trying to work out and state as he works through this text. So now let's get into chapter 2 and jump into verse 14. Now, before we do this, do you want to just jump right in, or do you want to lay out some of the LDS understanding of faith, which maybe clouds some of the waters here as far as why they get confused on some of these points? Yes. Well, I mean, we've hit it throughout the year at different points. I don't want to take too much time on it because I know we're running out of time. Two, Two quick things. One, just really quickly, the Father of Lights. This is one to remember. When they talk about God, Father, and they make it overly literal, yeah, the Father of the stars, right? Yeah, James is saying God is the Father of the stars. Mm-hmm. So clearly, Father doesn't. It's not this overly literal thing. Yeah. So that's something to point out. Uh, two on the faith point, I, I will just. Uh, we will put the Nelson talk we've seen all year. They quote it in the mantle all year, in which it's a power, it's a force. Mm-hmm. They really have faith in faith. Yeah. And then um, there is an article, What is Faith? by Dennis Rasm- Rasmussen, who was a professor of philosophy at BYU, associate professor at the time he uh, pu- this was published, um, in which he definitely talks about faith as a capacity, a power within somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll even say, you don't look within but you don't look without. You find it in the doing. And um, and he even uses this to say that, you know, doubt, if you're living the quote-unquote, living quote-unquote the gospel, yeah. then, um, you know, uh, don't worry. That means you believe it. Um, and uh, he even <laughs> says, we need to trust what our own good deeds tell us about ourselves. That This is in a chapter called What is Faith? In an academic press book. The unexpected amazed hero after the crisis has passed me truly say, I can't believe I did it. But the fact remains that he did. So that, I mean, we've seen it all year. They have faith in faith. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's it's it, it doesn't match either James or Paul. Yeah. And of course, I think that's the same. But even if you assume they're different. Right. There, there's, even the critical scholars would not recognize that in either James or Paul. Yep, yep. Okay, so... <clears throat> I know we said we're not going to talk about Paul anymore, but just for a quick comment here. Paul, and and this is why I want people to see that Paul and James agree. They don't disagree. They agree on the gospel. Paul himself articulates, we're justified not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the result of that faith? What what are are the qualities that that, uh, are manifest as a result of that faith of uh, being present within a person. Well, Paul himself right there in Galatians writes about the fruit of the spirit. Um, so the, the faith is a result of the indwelling of the Holy spirit. 
And that indwelling of the Holy Spirit causes a change within a person. Um, it, it, it's a root and fruit issue here. And, and this is the way that we always frame this because it's the way that we ought to understand this according to biblical standards. The root of the Christian's life is the objective truth of the gospel, which is what Christ has done for us and not what we do for him. And so we reflect upon that objective truth of the gospel. That is the truth that saves. It's what Christ has done, not what we ourselves do. But believing that gospel, um, of course, occurs because the Spirit indwells us and opens our eyes and enables us to believe and the the spirit comes in and produces fruit in a person and so there is a qualitative difference between true saving faith and other kinds of faith that are out there and that's what James is trying to get at he's trying to show if you have true saving faith your life's going to show it if you don't have true saving faith well, maybe that's why your life's not showing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James is not questioning the central importance of faith. Yeah. He's seeking the right understanding of faith. And then often the discussion gets caught up in straw man. And unfortunately, there's plenty of examples of that that kind of straw man that yep. exists. Yep. Okay, so of course, earlier in chapter one, and they, they link it as well, the hearing and the doing, right? The, the point is, if you just hear and aren't doing. There's an inconsistency. There's an abnormality. So uh, verse 14, this is where the section really starts. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, hey, pistis, that it points back to the use he's already given, that he's defined in context. Yeah. Um, and, and just the phrase, if someone says exactly, he it's a mere has claim. faith, he, he's saying he has faith. Exactly. It's the spoken claim with no, as we're going to get to, no substance to that claim yep. uh, with no evidence. So, and that's the thing. It's not faith in the abstract. It's that faith, uh, this faith, this kind of faith, yep. right? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Or what benefit is that, right? Once again, says, but the words have no un, no substantiation. There's no corresponding substance to it, right? It's a merely said faith in isolation, yeah. whereas saving faith is not isolated. That's not what we mean by sola fide. Um, so, so also faith by itself, it, if it does not have works, is dead. Is dead, right? So saving faith includes works. Once again, this is not faith versus works. This is living in true faith against the mere claim of having faith, right? And, and of course, in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me. This is the key. Yep. Show me. Dykeson, show, demonstrate. Um, demonstrate. Um, your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 19, you believe God is one. Okay, so that's a claim. You you say, right, you believe God is one. That's the Shema, by the way. Yep. There's only one God. That's right. That is well and good. <laughs> <Yeah. Like> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yes. There's one God. You do well is, is how ESV does it, but it's yeah. it's well and good. The profession is well and good. I want I have to point out, no form of Mormonism, right, believes this. Yeah. For sure, LDSism. Yep. 
right? Any polytheistic system is sub-demonic. So when LDS used this passage, keep this in mind. Wait, do you believe in one God? Well, yeah, because I, I don't think you even finished the line there. Yeah. E- even the demons believe yes. that. that Even the demons yep. believe even God is believe, one yep. and shudder. So that's what, what you yes. mean when you say it's sub-demonic, if you don't yes. even get that right. The demons can the deem- e- even right. get monotheism right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and notice, he's not saying um, heretical profession, but accompanied by work saves. Mm-hmm. No, that's a true profession. But if it's not a transformative, right? Yep. Show me, that's right. show me you that's believe right. it, yep. right? It needs to be personal, observable, and once again, that demonstration that's in the human realm, that's person to person. Yep, that's in you know that's in a, a world context, a church context, right? Um, which, I, which by the way, if I could just insert here, please. historically within the Christian church, and rightly so, orthodoxy has been considered more important than orthopraxy. Um, it, it has been considered more critical and more battles have been fought on ensuring that we have right belief uh, versus right practice. But that does not mean that orthodoxy can exist without orthopraxy. Right. And that's what you see happening here. Is mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter if you have right belief if that right belief is not manifested in right practice. Right. You, you've got to have both. Otherwise, it's not a saving faith. You can have mm-hmm. all the right doctrine in the world. This is why there are PhDs in theology burning mm-hmm. in hell, Sure, according to our perspective, mm-hmm. is because if it's not a saving faith, if you don't, right. if, if, if you don't love this truth and are, are changed by this truth, then it doesn't matter how accurate you are theologically. Right. Yeah. I, I like this quote from James White. A dead faith can speak the right words without being a true and living faith. Dead orthodoxy is just as much a danger in James's thinking as living heresy is for Paul's. Mm-hmm. So the goal is not just do it. It doesn't matter what you believe, what the faith is. The goal is orthodoxy and a living faith that transforms. Yes. And, and the historic Reformed view, I'll just put this here instead of at the end, right, has always distinguished in what we mean by faith, right? There's notitia, which is the things we believe about Christ. There's a census, which you believe those things are true. And then fiducia, there's trust and reliance in those things, Yep. right? Um, and, and of course, when you see God saves, but he saves with a purpose, he gives the righteousness he requires, as you saw in chapter one, right? But he also transforms the saved as he desires. Mm-hmm. And once again, if you don't, if you can't see that, you need to be challenged, right? Yeah. I need yeah. to be challenged. Yeah. Okay, so this is why it's so important. You need both. <clears throat> okay, so even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart, apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now notice, this foolish man, or it's empty man, and, and, of course, uh, do, do you want to be shown? Do you, uh, don't you understand? Do you desire evidence? Yep. Um, once again, that this faith, once again, there's the article, right? That this faith, the faith he's been criticizing, that he's defined as he's gone along, right? That is what he's criticizing. So he shows um, it's, it's useless. It doesn't work. Yep. You know, faith yep. without works does no work. It's a deedless faith that bears no fruit. Think of Jesus's parable of the sower, right? He has a category of people that receive, but there's no fruit in a category of those who do. Yep. Uh, 
James and Paul both agree. And, and once again, even in Paul, right? Faith worketh through love. Yea, we right. establish the law, right? That's right. Verse 10 in Ephesians 2. So the um, Abraham is this example of a living faith that's not merely claimed. He demonstrated it, right? And once again, this demonstration, um, there, maybe this is the time to bring up this this um, this fallacy that's well known if you study exegesis. I'm sure you studied it um, formally. I, for me, it's just through books, right? But D.A. Carson and Moises Silva are super helpful on understanding language and how to handle text. And they talk about this fallacy called the unwarranted adoption of an expanded semantic field. Maybe a, a less, uh, there's a shorter way to call it, a, a, short, a, a smaller term, illegitimate totality transfer. And this is when you illegitimately transfer, uh, import the entire semantic range, the entire range of meaning of a word into that word in a particular context, yep. right? Um, or that uh, the meaning of a word in a specific context is much broader than the context itself yep. allows. Yeah, as my old professor, Dr. Charlie Draper, used to say, words don't have meanings they have usages. They don't yeah. have definitions even. They have usages. Right. And so when you're doing exegesis, your goal is not to determine a bare definition of a word. You want to you understand how is this word being used in the right. context by the author because right. there is a semantic range to every word. There, there You've got to dial in how mm -hmm. it's being used in that specific context. Exactly. Um, it, it's the way Silva puts it, the simple fact that any one instance of a word will not bear all the meanings possible for that word. So think about it. The same Luke that clearly, Luke 18, the justification is before God. Yeah. Well, he also has that wisdom is justified by all her children, or the Matthew uh, version, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And in academic commentaries, right, what does that mean? What does the word justified mean? Does it yeah. mean how you're saved before a holy God? No, it's, it's proven right. Mm -hmm. It's been proven. It's yeah. been tested and found um, real, right? It's been authenticated. Yep. And that's the use of the word here. Just follow the flow. Let yep. James tell you what he's saying. Yep. And instead, what we do is that we bring it, we see the verbal parallels, and instead of the immediate context, we're rejecting that subtly, and we're bringing in general theological concepts in making it a debate yeah. where there isn't an organic debate occurring. Yep. Um, and so we, uh, it, and I, I really like this comment from Luke Timothy Johnson that we should, the precise meaning shouldn't flow from a theological pre-commitment to a theological perspective, but from the context himself. He's a Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. and he would be calling out the Catholic answers abuse of verse 24, as we're going to get into, yeah. as much as anyone. I, I really appreciated his work on James, by the way. So um, so once again, this he's he's being vindicated, in a sense, right, yeah. Yeah. by works when he offered up his son. Yeah. We That's can right. see that the justification occurred in Genesis 15. That's right. Is tested fifteen six yeah fifteen six it, it's that's where it says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness and so you got that going on in fifteen six of Genesis and then this uh, case with Isaac is in what twenty two yep twenty two um, the Akedah yeah mm -hmm. yep and this is where we see that vindicated yep. we see it God didn't need to see it yep. he already declared it he knows the end from the beginning. Yeah, that's right. right? So the, once again, in, in Paul, we have justification in Galatians 3 before God in his sight, Romans 3. Whereas James, what's the point? Show me. Yeah. Demonstrate. Right. 
not just the mere claim. Where's the substance to yep, the claim? Yep. Um, if the root is there, yes, the fruit will be the there. The fruit will follow, right. And uh, so the, this is, uh, let's see, verse 22. I have more there, but we got to get going. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed, perfected by his works. This is so interesting. Um, faith was working together with his works. That's what it says. Abraham's, but notice, Abraham's offering of Isaac did not change the nature of the faith relationship, right? It demonstrated it was actual. It's not an addition. That's his whole point. This is not something in addition to that you, you it's like a foreign element that you add to. Uh, no, it's, it's not a key to unlock. It's a realization, of what God has purposed in the salvation already given. Uh, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says... I, I would just... Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I, please. Uh, we, we, we just have to connect this to Ephesians 2, yeah. 8 through 10. Yes. Uh, right? For, for grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Um, we, we, are, we are saved by grace through faith, but then Paul says in verse uh, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, yep, which unto. God prepared beforehand that mm-hmm. we should walk in them. So right. the the right Christian perspective is the that God has predestined the yes. good works for the believer. Um, and and we, we have this these works before us. And it's exciting as a Christian. It's like God, God has saved me by his grace. And now not only has he saved me, he has prepared all these good works for me that I just get to fulfill. I get to complete these now, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a, it's like a joyful challenge as one who has been changed. James has the exact same thing in mind. That's the point that he's making. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Yeah. Paul's saying the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and of course, uh, though so many, even in the Christian category, want to point to Protestants and act like we don't have doctrine of sanctification mm-hmm. as well, <laughs> we do. That's <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, you can't you know you can't fix. It's not what um, earns us favor with God, right? No, that's the that's in Christ, the, right? This is why the show me the it's horizontal. It's in Christ that we now have all these joyful works that we yeah. get to walk in, right? Yeah. And remember, who's the God? James worships. It's the one God with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change, right? Yep, that's right. So does his, is he just sitting there hoping Abraham does the right thing with the capacity within him? Yep. No, he knows all things. Yeah. He doesn't, there's no knowledge addition to this that's right. God. That's right. He prepared that good work. Yes. For Abraham. Yes. Ahead of time. And this is and not. Abraham walked in mm-hmm. it. Right. Yeah. And this is not just us. Um, in concept, though there's some Latin issues on the doctrine of justification with Augustine, of course, because he's reading the Latin that was mistranslated. But um, the concept is there in Augustine. Augustine read this the same way. Now, yeah. it's just so, yeah, um, it, it's encouraging when mm-hmm. you find that this is not just us. We're not waiting for this. Um, so, okay, verse um, 23 and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice, it's fulfilled. Once again, he's not saying, oh, but we don't know yet in terms of God's view. God yep. doesn't know yet. We yep. don't know yet, but God doesn't know yet, right? Um, and he was called a friend of God, right? Um, and once again, this is fulfilled not through addition of something to faith, 
as the means of justification, but by the demonstration that Abraham uh, did, in fact, believe God. Mm -hmm. 24, you see that, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this is, this is, if you just jump to verse 24, you're not doing justice to the text. I don't care who you are. Mm -hmm. He's, what faith is he condemning? What faith alone is he condemning? Yep. Right? Which faith? Right. Yes. It, it, it's um, this Saving is, faith? Right. He's not saying that the, right, the insufficiency of a living faith to justify. Yep. Uh, right? He's, he's saying the non-salvific dead faith, it's a mere claim that's right. with no evidence. That's the faith alone. And, and once again, that justified as well. We can't just bring in the entire concept here. And act like James is talking about all things at once within the semantic domain. Any more than wisdom being justified by her children is about, right, Christ yeah. being justified by our good deeds. Yep. Right? Yep. See where you can go if you just oh, let yeah. words be whatever yep. Yep. is allowable within a dictionary definition. Yep. So, and, and this, of course, is going to flow into verse 25, which is, and in the same way, the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now here, are we saying that God justifies prostitutes on the basis of hiding spies? No. If you look at Joshua 2, what does she say? She believes in the the God, quote, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. How do we see that that's not just a mere profession? Yeah. Because she was willing to sacrifice everything to hide God's right yep, messengers yep, at this point, yep. this spies. So once again, it's clear and it flows. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And and even here, right? And once again, this is going to be an issue for an LDS that's trichotomous, that thinks of an eternal intelligence, that mm-hmm. gets a spirit body, that has a physical body. Um, no, we have body and spirit. Bichotomy, right? And it's unnatural for them to be separate. Death is a full body amputation. Um, I guess in this day and age, leave it to the Christians to tell people they are their body. They're not mm-hmm. only that though, yep. right? So you look at Genesis 2, it's body and life. There's two and they're meant to be together. They're created. To, we were created as embodied beings. Yep. We're not eternally existing anything uh, apart from that. And only God is eternal. So truly, definitional union of faith and deeds, that's... That's the parallel, is a body and spirit, right? So this is, this is um, so just, I guess the, the more I look at this, the more it's like, well, of course, if you have no theology that cares about what, sp- what scriptures say, you're, you're going to not care about what is really being taught. They, once again, the LD, LDS don't read this text and then define their faith, Yep. right? They have their you know, whatever, their range of religious views, and they see this as a weapon, and that's all it is for them. What James is actually saying, and Christians, honestly, I don't know whether to be harder uh, on some Christians who will use this against us, uh, just jumping to verse 24, or or uh, easier on them by virtue of them being at least monotheistic and not sub-demonic in their theology. But clearly what's happening here, if you just jump to 24, is what Ken Bailey calls the tyranny of the number system. Right, we we cannot we got to let the text 
uh, it per- permit it to, to order its own ideas, yeah. to teach based on itself. It, these weren't divided into chapters and verses yeah. originally. And so what, it, what, what happens is what Ken Bailey calls a subtle control by the verse numbers, the chapters, especially headings that aren't scripture. Um, right. Verse 24 is not in a vacuum and shouldn't be used as such. Yep. He's already defined the faith he's condemning and it's not the faith that Paul is commending. Yep. That's right. All right. I'm going to close this with a quote from Tom Schreiner in his book, Faith Alone. He just beautifully articulates the kind of saving faith that, uh, that we ought to see in every true believer. And that sort of saving faith will result in a life filled with good works. He writes, that faith that saves trusts, trusts. You read LDS stuff, you don't see faith relative to trust. Faith is the works that we walk in. But here, the faith that saves trusts in God's promises. Just as Abraham trusted that his offspring would be as many as the stars of the sky, faith must not be confused with wish fulfillment nor do we find faith in faith itself. Abraham's hope was circumcised by God's promise. Still, that promise was astonishing and beyond the capacity of Abraham and Sarah to fulfill themselves since they were well beyond the years where they could have children. Faith doesn't turn a blind eye toward human weakness. It faces the facts and acknowledges that human, humanly speaking, the fulfillment of the promise is impossible. Faith puts its hope in God instead of the human subject. Indeed, faith glorifies and honors God, for it confesses that God can do what he has promised. The faith that saves, then, is dynamic and powerful. It is a faith that expresses itself in love, for a living faith produces love, and such love functions as evidence that faith is genuine and vital. Thanks for joining us. Next week we'll be in uh, I first and second remember. Peter. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you then.